In 2006, a bunch of buddies of mine drove 30 hours straight to Los Angeles to be on The Price is Right. This was a childhood dream of mine. I grew up watching it. Anytime you were homesick from school, it was mandatory watching. I can't be the only person, right? It was a dream of mine. So, bum, 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 bum. Adam Musto, you're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Ah! It was like my lifelong dream to be on The Price is Right. So attending the show was fascinating. The studio was actually very, very small. About 200 people fit in there. And uh, when it was time to go in, we lined up in groups of about 15 to 20 and were sort of, before we were taken into the studio and seated, we were lined up and, and these people asked us questions. They asked us what our names were and where we were from. Well, it didn't take too long to realize this is an interview. These were the producers of the show asked every single person going into the studio their name and where they were from and maybe something like tell us something about yourself. The producers were sizing up who they thought would be the most entertaining contestants. Now here I thought it was luck of the draw. Oh no. It was predetermined by the producers. That's why you always get the sweet kind of grandma type person, the military veteran, the crazy college kid. They're all handpicked. Now if you're curious, my friend Abby got on the show and I didn't and I haven't watched an episode since. <laughs> that's, how, that's how petty I am. It was all decided in advance. Now, there are many Christians who would apply this concept to our faith, to our lives, that everything has been predetermined by God, including, in particular, who will spend eternity with God and who won't. So has our eternal destiny already been decided by God, the great producer in the sky? That's the debate of predestination versus free grace. What I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together today is that God offers unlimited grace to undeserving people. In this three-week series called Hot Takes, uh, we'll be looking at some of the things that make the Methodist faith distinct. A hot take is an opinion that can be controversial. Uh, for example, here, here's a hot take of mine. Are you ready? I hope you're seated. You are. I think the microwave should have only one button, one giant 30-second button. That's my hot take, right? I don't go through the process of when it's time to microwave something, I'm not like, okay, let's see, cook time, three, oh, oh. No, I'll just smash the 30-second button six times and get on with my day. I gotta simplify my life, man. Why does the microwave have so many buttons? Has anybody ever used the potato button on your microwave? Oh my gosh. You guys are exhausting. You're exhausting. All right, so there's a hot take of mine. Try to go with something. It's like in a world where this is a real industry, I had to pick something safe, right? A lot of the sports media industry is filled with hot takes that are kind of instant reactions to the news of the day. Uh, Skip Bayless and, and uh, Stephen A. Smith have become noteworthy because of their hot takes. And that wasn't far from some of John, uh, Methodist founder John Wesley's sermons. Very controversial in his day. Uh, before Us Weekly or TMZ or TikTok or Twitter told us what was trending, people would debate and discuss theology, if you can imagine that, particularly that of notable preachers. And John Wesley was one who, who was controversial at times for some of his views. And one of those was his sermon, Free Grace, which inspired this sermon today. 
So I do want to say as we jump in to our, to our three-week series, Hot Takes, you know, I had to come up with a better name than stuff John Wesley thought that was good. I, I had to, it's got to have a little bit of a hook somewhere. I had to debut my microwave take for you all. Uh, but so as we look at some of the distinct things theologically that, that make Methodism what it is, I want to acknowledge that there's lots of different types of churches because there's lots of different types of people. And that's okay. And so some of us may not agree with everything I'm going to tell you today or, or with John Wesley. We might all line up, not line up with him exactly. Faithful Christians think and believe differently on a number of issues. What I have found, what something I hope you hear me say often, is that most theology is a matter of emphasis. In other words, particularly when it comes to the Bible, some people will emphasize this or that scripture kind of over some other ones and vice versa. That's how we form our beliefs is, is what we tend to emphasize in the scriptures. But friends, we can differentiate our faith without degrading others. So that's, that's not the point of these three weeks is to explain why Methodism is su- supreme and, and everybody else is dumb. That's not what we're going for. And that's not a faithful way to approach faith. Um, so our scripture today is one that would be cited or emphasized by proponents of predestination. The idea that your eternal destiny has already been decided by God and there's literally not a thing you can do about it. It comes from the book of Romans. This was a letter written to the church in Rome by someone named Paul. Uh, Paul had an amazing experience, kind of this conversion experience with Jesus and went from hunting down Christians to starting churches. And, and we're at a crossroads in, in the timeline of Christianity where the church is expanding both geographically and ethnically. Uh, we're, we're kind of, the circle is growing wider beyond uh, the original uh, Jewish circle that in many ways Christianity began as. Paul's writing to the young church in the center of Roman power that opposes the teachings of Jesus because they're treasonous against Julius Caesar. To the Romans, Caesar was a god, and if you worshipped or anyone else other than Caesar, that was treason. If If you claim there was another king besides Caesar, that was treason. Romans, in my opinion, kind of the top one or two toughest books to wrap your mind around. So let's get into it. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Well, scoop, there it is, just in plain sight, predestined. This word is used six total times in the New Testament, six. The sense in the original Greek is to determine something ahead of time before its occurrence. Now, what's impossible for us to understand is how God experiences time, We experience time in a linear way, like in a progression, but God is outside of time. Don Thorson is an author who wrote a book called Calvin versus Wesley. And if if this is something that uh, you get excited about like I do, I'd recommend this book if you want some, some more reading on the subject. Don Thorson said, people are limited to the finite duration of time, which they experience as past, present, and future. However, God is not limited in the same way and knows all things as though they are present. So it's important for us to, to, to get it in the right order. For those that God foreknew, God also predestined. With this in mind, we can say those who are predestined are so because of God's knowledge, not God's will. 
It's an important distinction. If God knows all things and experiences past and present and future at once, the ones who God foreknew, God also predestined. See, it's one thing to say in God's infinite knowledge that God knows the destiny of all humans, but it is another thing to say that God chooses some who are predestined to salvation while choosing others who are predestined to eternal suffering. Big distinction. In the context of this verse, what Paul is describing as the thing we're predestined to is being conformed to the image of his son. That way we would be transformed to be more and more like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the aim. As Wesley put it, the whole goal of our faith is to possess the mind of Christ and walk as he walked. To see the world as Jesus did and to live in it as Jesus did. So what follows in Romans 8 are the steps in which this conforming takes place. The ways that we're transformed into the image of Christ. And those he predestined, he also called Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So as we'll soon see, my interpretation of Romans 8 would mean that God doesn't call just some, but all. The difference in the predestined is God's knowledge. Now when we speak of being justified, it's it's being seen as blameless. If you are justified in your decision, then no one blames you for that decision you made. See, our sin separates us from God, but God no longer counts our sins against us. I'm just blowing through a lot. We got a lot of ground to cover. We could have a whole sermon or six on just that sentence. Being glorified is usually in the sense of, of entering the eternal heavenly state. And so there are four steps here that's laid, that are laid out in Romans 8. Being predestined, being called, being justified, and being glorified. Now, some read these as a chain of events, again, in a very linear way. So you can't be called unless you are first predestined, and you can't be justified unless you are first predestined, right? As if God predestining you is like a key that unlocks the other steps. But for Wesley, predestination was about God's knowledge, not God's will. And the other steps that we just read were simply showing the method in which God works, whereby God leads us up step by step, towards heaven. So the key question for us today is what is God's desire for only some to be called justified and glorified or all? Let's keep reading in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So I think a very pertinent question is what's the meaning of us? Who is us? Is it just Paul's audience? Is is it all humankind? The Bible tells us that Paul was God's chosen instrument to proclaim God's name to the Gentiles and their kings. So Paul's entire mission was the expansion of the faith beyond the original Jews in Jerusalem to the Gentiles around the globe. Gentiles is, uh, is also translated heathen, by the way, and that was a word that came from biblical times, meaning those who were not Jewish. That would be us. Uh, or I won't speak for all of you. That would definitely be my heritage. So Paul's entire mission was the expansion of the faith to the Gentiles. So I tend to think of Paul saying us as expanding the definition. Do you believe that God is for people? Is God for all people 
or only a select few that God has already chosen. Now, I said this the other day. I would love to meet somebody who believes in predestination but doesn't think that they're predestined for heaven. Like, oh, Terry, nice to meet you. Hey, quick, give me your take on predestination. Oh, yeah, big fan. Just wish I was predestined. (laughs) Tough draw on that one. Like, nobody says that. It It doesn't make sense to me. I think we can safely expand the definition of us to mean everyone because of what we read in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Christ was given for all. The Greek word in Romans 8 for all, the root of that is pas, which means each and every. That's pretty all-encompassing. Now, whether people make the choice to accept or reject the grace God offers them in Christ, that's another sermon for another day. But it is clear to me in these verses What's confirmed is is what is said many times in the scriptures about the intended benefactors of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That God did not intend only for some to benefit, but all. Not some, but all. In fact, Paul spent some time in the next chapter, Romans 9, explaining why God's promises aren't just limited to the chosen people, the Jews, but rather how that grace is expanding uh, and it's, it's according to God's promises, not your ethnicity. God offers unlimited grace to undeserving people. I don't believe that God has a VIP list, and if you're off of it, too bad, so sad. And there isn't anything we do to earn God's grace, which is the opposite of most of the experiences we have in the world. You don't have to be good enough to deserve God's grace. That's the whole point. Wesley said, whatsoever is good in man or is done by man, God is the author and doer of it. Thus is his free grace in all. That is, in no way depending on any power or merit in man, but on God alone, who freely gave us his own son and with him freely giveth us all things. So next week, we're gonna get into how God's grace is the beginning of our faith journey, not the end, and how free grace is offered to us all and how our faith is lived out in response to God who first loved us. So that's where we're we're gonna unpack this more next week, but what this week is about is is trying to answer the question, well, how many people is God's grace for? Is it only for the predestined, or is it for everybody? So patterned after John Wesley's sermon, Free Grace, I would offer you three reasons that free grace is preferable to predestination. Excuse me, predestination. I would have been a great name for this sermon, predestination. Thank you, Sherry, backing me up here. One, free grace is consistent with the character of God. A couple years ago, uh, my wife and I were at the pool uh, at our townhome with some friends and our, and our two kids. And, uh, you know, getting, getting ready to leave from the pool is like a whole ordeal. If, if, you, if you know, you know. And so we're getting our stuff together. We had brought food and we're getting all that. And in the mix of uh, getting everything ready to leave, uh, we took our eyes off at the time my four-year-old son and he fell into the pool. Uh, great story to tell on Father's Day, right? Now, he's fine. He ended up being fine. But that was not a great experience to have as a parent. It was terrifying. And as I was thinking about how awful that was for him to have been thrown in the pool, I, I kind of had this image in my mind. 
Like if God creates people only to be destroyed in eternal suffering, that would have been like me shoving my three-year-old into the pool and then walking away. How can we worship a God that we wouldn't see fit to be a parent? Now, God has described many different ways in the Bible. Theology, what we think about God, once again, is usually a matter of emphasis. Many times in scripture, we read this description of God, who is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And and Wesley said, in terms of predestination, to suppose God, of his own mere notion, of his pure will and pleasure, happy as he is, to doom his creatures, whether they will or no, to endless misery, is to impute such cruelty to him as we cannot impute even to the great enemy of God and man. In other words, predestination makes God worse than the devil. Two, free grace is consistent with the trajectory of Scripture. John Wesley said the doctrine of predestination tends to overthrow the whole Christian revelation, the Bible, by making it contradict itself by giving such an interpretation of some texts as flatly contradicts all the other texts and indeed the whole scope and tenor of scripture. We did a three-month series called Long Story Short at the beginning of the year where we looked at God's pursuit of people to be in right relationship with him. Moving from Abraham to the people of Israel to the whole world, the trajectory of the Bible is more and more people being included in God's gracious promises, not less If we believe that God only chose some that he predestined, then we make Jesus a liar when he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Or when Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Yeah, I could keep going, but surely six instances of predestined language doesn't sway the entire mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. Not to confirm the elect, to seek and save the lost. Three, free grace is consistent with reality. Imagine you had a class where a certain portion of the class would get an A and the rest would fail. Like, would you even go to that class? Would you even show up? I think 16-year-old Adam would have loved that class. Oh, nothing I can do about it. May as well not go. Right? Predestination makes the practice of faith irrelevant. Like, what's the point of preaching or praying or believing if at the end of the day, God has already deemed you in or out? Free grace reflects the reality that humans have a role to play in God's story, and that is consistent with our experience in life. Now, I'm not, true, I'm not trying to be mean, and I'm not here to dog on our friends of other denominations or other beliefs. I'm just asking a question. I have always wondered why... why Churches of Calvinist belief, like why do they have things like job interviews? If it's all been predestined by God, like shake up the magic eight ball, man. See, it's inconsistent with our experience of reality. Now throughout this whole sermon, if I have deeply offended you because predestination is a closely held belief of yours, then let me just say, if I'm wrong, and you're right, then none of this matters. So save us both the email. (laughs) 
save it. Free grace also keeps us humble because we believe that God offers unlimited grace to undeserving people and faithful Christians will put themselves first in that line and consider themselves undeserving of God's grace. Because another danger of the doctrine of predestination is that we can use it to subconsciously kind of confirm our own biases. We can easily make the jump from someone we don't like to them also being someone who must not be elect. It's not a big jump. Friends, how freely does God love the world? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were dead in our sin, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Thanks be to God for the gift of Jesus Christ, who offers unlimited grace to undeserving people. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, we we pause to, to say thank you for the gift of your son who came and demonstrated for us what it was to truly live and in his graciousness offered us true life. God, we thank you for that good news which is available to everyone. We confess that sometimes we like to kind of corner your grace and either keep it to ourselves or, or, or maybe think that this person or those kind of people don't deserve it. God, we ask your forgiveness whenever we slip into this mentality. God, it's been my experience that, that Methodists are, are people that can embrace mystery. And so God, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we're just doing our best to grasp at just how it is you work in and among us. So God, whatever our questions, whatever our doubts, help us leave this place assured of one thing, that you sent your son as as an example of your great love for us. Help us remember that and help us look at every person we meet every day as someone that you loved so much you sent your son for. It's in his name we pray, amen.